And hello, hello, hello. Welcome back again to the Safe Toddles podcast. I'm Dr. Grace Ambrosakin here with my co-host, Kelvin Crosby. Hey, 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 everybody. It's so good to see you, even though I can't see you. And I <laughs> hope you guys are all having a great day. I never get tired of that <laughs> joke. <laughs> And we're so excited. Today we have a guest with us. Can you tell us who you have invited, Calvin, to so join us today? I invited one of my best friends. Uh, he was the groomsman at my wedding. And Aww. he, and he uh, him and I, we go back. Oh, we, we did the math at one point. I think it was like a little. No, we, oh, no been, here we go. I've been dating my wife since I was 11 years. We've known each other 11 years. And I met George right when I started dating my wife. And so, uh, nice. um, but we got, and then he was, then we got married a year, year and a half later and George was there and he got his new dog, Vail. And then he retired. When, when did he retire Vail? Just a couple of weeks, uh, a couple, a year and a half ago, right? Or two yep. years. Yep. It was yep. two, almost two years ago, 20, 2018. Yep. Well, cause at that point I had a yellow lab and, a and, a and then, and he had a black lab, and now we have opposite. So I have a black lab. He has a yellow lab, and so we we call ourselves the salt salt and pepper team. Uh, I love it. I so, love it. Uh, well, I do. I have a black poodle and a white Maltese poodle mix, and so I have a little salt and pepper over here too. Yeah, cool, cool. So I want to introduce you guys all to George Stern. He's the vice president of Deafblind Citizens in Action. He's also a well right well-rounded writer for some of food journals, right? Uh, food ma- magazine. Yeah, I write for Serious Eats magazine. I'm a freelance writer. Yep. So he, he loves to eat and make awesome food. I, I tell you, he, he came and lived with me for three weeks, and he made me chicken, but I, I spoiled him on the donut stuff. I fattened him up because he came to me skinny, and I, I, I fattened him up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so just to give you a, a little bit about George, um, George was born hearing and seeing, and then shortly you were about two, right? Yeah, George lost the two years old or two and a half years old is when I realized uh, they discovered that I had cancer after an initial misdiagnosis for something else, and then I had the eyes removed at. Exactly two and a half, nineteen ninety-three. I came to the states and had my eyes removed, and I started experiencing hearing loss and getting in more into deafblind territory when I was, say, three, four, and I had periods of steeper and less steep hearing decline. The steepest decline in my hearing occurred throughout high school wow so amazing and here you are so successful not that it's amazing i guess to be successful but it's just always wonderful to hear of success um what do you attribute your success to in your writing career and your cooking career well calvin and i are going to be talking about this later in our podcast the perseverance podcast uh but i think a large part of it is owed to community, both the community that I had in terms of my family and them being generally very supportive, particularly my parents. You know, 
when they came to the States as Jamaicans, and I was born in Jamaica, incidentally, so when we came to the States, we had no idea about the National Federation for the Blind or National Library Services or any kind of support system for blind people. There was just a determination in their head that, hey, I'm, I was their kid, and they were going to stay engaged with me just like they would with any other kid, hearing sighted, purple, blue, whatever. And so, you know, long before we knew about the National Library Service, which records talking books for blind people in the United States, my dad was reading to me and recording his voice on cassettes so that I would have access to books whenever I wanted them. And so just that idea of we're going to stay engaged as parents, we're going to make sure, you know, it feels like one of our kids. At this time, I was the only kid, so of course I was spoiled. And so that determination is it's something that followed me through much of my early childhood and early adolescence. So that's one major thing I would owe my success to. I think that it's wonderful to hear of all of the ingenuity and of families, you know, because there was, there has always been sort of an ongoing problem with access to real important information and how to's for, for centuries, truly. And my area of interest is more specifically with mobility because that's my area of expertise, I guess. I, if I were into reading, I'd probably have a real interest in Braille, which I know is equally important and uh, access to literature. But before all of that happens, I have a grandson. He's one year old, and he's not yet walking, but very close. And my own son was one year old to the day when he started walking. And at two, when you... Were, became blind and they removed your eyeballs, you probably were already walking, I would yeah, imagine. I was actually an early walker. I think all the kids in my family have been uh, probably walking by eight months, I would say. Wow. So that is very, <laughs> that is very early. And so at that point, uh, two, two and a half, um, you probably were running and quite adept at getting around. Um, well, that was that was part of the story of discovering my visual impairment. Um, they, I was pretty active as a toddler, kicking. You know, soccer is a big thing in Jamaica, and so there's always this family story that I was destined to be a great soccer star because you know early on I would kick the ball and run after it and chase it and. I had all these pets, a pet goat, pet dog, pet turtle, whom I would chase. And one day, they saw that I wasn't being as accurate as I usually was. I was not responding to walls the way I should. Uh, and that was when they were like, what is going on? So, yeah, the mobility was, uh, it was developed pretty early on in my life, and then as you say, that the cancer occurred and my eyes were removed. So it was a question of, all right, we have a very mobile kid. What's next? What do we do to adjust to this new rea new reality? So, George, can you tell us a little bit about that transition to from being blind 
or from being seen to blind and then learning what it's like to travel using a cane or how, how did you, what was your struggles with that? I don't think I got introduced to a cane until maybe either late kindergarten or first grade. So I was probably about six or seven. My, my partner, Danielle, was actually telling me that she had a cane in her hand since she was three years old. So if you ever want to talk to her, she's a good one to talk to because she's a phenomenal cane user. So before then, I was pretty much... And at this time, I still had some fairly decent hearing. Like I could echolocate and all. I still can to some degree. Then my hearing had decreased not very significantly. And so I was still, I was actually clicking at that time, if I remember correctly. Uh, so I was using my tongue to produce the clicking sound. For me, there wasn't really that much of a transition as far as I could remember. You know, I, I, I truly cannot, I have no conscious memories of what it was to see. And it's interesting because people tell me that whether or not I have any conscious memories, I, my motor development mirrors mostly uh, a, a more visual-centered motion concept which is astonishing to me because I'm like, well, I, I really don't remember seeing. I remember other experiences. Like my memories actually go a lot further back than most people when it comes to smells, experiences, events. But when it comes to, you know, do I remember what colors look like? No. Uh, do I remember having, moving through the world as a sighted person? No. And so for me, it was just, well, this is how I've always moved through the world as a blind person. And the one that I really have to adjust to now is moving through the world as a deaf blind person because that's a whole nother layer. It's interesting because it makes sense to me in my studies of walking and people who have acquired blindness at that age. After, once, when you learn to walk as a one and two year old, it continues to show afterwards as you've been told that you look and sh seem like you didn't grow up um, blind and because of the way that you move and that's very much at the heart of why I founded this company a nonprofit dedicated to safe mobility wearing a belt cane from early on um, because w one of the outcomes of walking without any information from the get-go is you said something about your accuracy with walls is that what you meant to say like you were actually clipping a wall or kind of running or, or did you mean to say yeah, ball? I, I was no i was running into walls yes uh, yeah, <laughs> right? i, I yes. was running into walls that right? is not a nice thing <laughs> no. uh, so it's there's several things to what you said there because it's interesting they had to retrain me because I didn't have any visual stimuli at a certain point when children make the transition, I think, from walking up on our toes or up on the balls of our feet to doing heel-toe. Because that was not for me a natural walking position. Heel-toe was not a natural walking, walking position. It was more natural for me to be closest to the balls of my feet up on my toes. 
And so they actually had to train me like, nope, heel toe, heel toe. And then they had to retrain me that when I got an injury one time when I jumped off an exercise bike and landed on my tricycle. And so, of course, I started limping. And then I was like, okay, let's go back to heel. Let's go back to toe heel because, you know, the toes don't hurt. The heel does. So do you, do you wear a tutu and do a spiral and do your toe dancing? I did like not. Ballerinas? Yet. I did not. I saved that till much later. Yay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yeah, so there was that. And then there's another aspect of it, which is, and I found out about this when I started running with uh, a running group that I run with. I have an, an Irish running coach. And one of the things he would always tell me was like, turn your feet in, you know, in that. <laughs> I'm trying to mimic his accent because it's hilarious. Because, you know, my feet, it's, it turned out, had a tendency to turn outward, maybe at a 45 degree. And why that was, and I've learned this, this is actually a good thing when it comes to things like ballet, because the ballet teacher will tell you, turn your feet out 45 degrees, because that's how you maintain balance. That is the optimal foot positioning for balance well i mean i think that ballet is dance and balance in ballet is certainly i do actually do bar ballet exercise and i know that position you're talking about but for walking and any physical therapist would say and what your running coach is saying is that you want straight feet moving forward as that's the most efficient position for your feet to walk and run in. And why does a child who can't see put their feet out for balance? It's because you never know what's coming. It's a protective posture. That actually proves the point, I think, of the ballet teacher, right? Because if a sighted person could not see what was coming, you it would actually make more sense. Because if your feet are True. moving in a same in the same line, like directly parallel, it literally is easier for you to be tripped. Like that's why trips work. Right? Trips work because your feet are are moving in the same line across a very low plane. And so if something can interrupt that plane, that's how you trip. Whereas if your feet are wider spread apart and are open, it becomes a little bit harder for you to be tripped if something you know, if a, a stick comes out or a foot comes out. so Yet, there is another solution, and that is what adults use are white canes, right? And white canes are the anticipatory tool yeah. for like locating those things, yes, mm-hmm. in your path that allow you to have confidence in your next step. And that confidence allows you to walk at a regular pace and even run. I would wish for all of us that they would come up with a running cane so you didn't have to be held onto a tether um, necessarily. Or even with a tether, you'd have that same path information while running. But they haven't really done a lot of cane manufacture for sportsmen. Well, the other thing with cane manufacture for that environment is kind of the same thing I tell you with the dog. Like, you're doing things with your hand that are going to mess up the feedback. Right? Like when you're running, ideally, you're recruiting your arms, you, you're, you're moving your arms back and forth to pump in that pumping motion. And so it becomes a question of, all right, can I do this and swing a cane effectively 
when I'm going, I don't know what the human running speed is, 15, 13 miles per hour, something. Right. And so the answer is, well, I guess we better not do anything. And I think that that's why Safe Toddles has come up with a wearable belt cane for blind toddlers, because that can't be the answer. It can't be either you use this one singular device or nothing, you know, and then you're like, throw them to the wolves. They're just going to have to trip over stuff and fall over stuff until like all conditions are ready and right for this one particular device to be optimally used. And in fact, that one device has been shown to be actually exposes you to about 30% of um, obstacles in your path. So it's like 70% effective when used correctly. So, you know, it's... Oh, Calvin and I have arguments about this all the time because I'm, I'm team NFB long white cane. I'm... It I love be, the cane. I teach the cane. It at your nose level. And he, no, nah, man. I can keep it at my belly button, man. Like, no. <laughs> he does <man>. not. <laughs> well, I know that's funny, but I know, Cal, you want to say something. But I just want to say, I am team cane. I don't think that we've gone far enough, though, is what I'm saying. Just getting it a little longer and having some different tips is not enough innovation for a person who wants to run. It's not helping you run. And therefore, we need to really understand that if you can't see where you're going, you need a way to get path information in a form that is immediate and profoundly useful to you. And we just have dropped the ball on creating tools for blind athletes. I don't know why blind soccer players have to go out on the field without any information about where that next player is and run headlong. Same with blind basketball. Same with blind any running sport where you're blind. You have no protection. You just are supposed to go out and take the hits and keep on ticking. And I don't get it. I think it's a terrible way to bring children up into this world of sport, thinking that you really have well, to withstand bruises. Right. What happens most often is that blind people get sidelined from the world of sport. Like, that's oh, you right. don't need to take that's right. Like, oh, you don't need to do this. And that sucks because, as you know, immobility or lack of mobility is, is one of the main medical killers of blind people, along with isolation. Perfect. Right? Yes. Yeah. What were you going to say, Calvin? So, uh, I just want to kind of jump in here and kind of just wrap us up here. Uh, no, we can't wrap up. Can't I got to talk about my cane. I tried to get them to stop, but they they overpowered me. Listen, it's 20 minutes, but let me just say that's the, so what I'm saying is if you grew up with a cane that you could wear and have it on all the time. And that it would give you the clear or blocked path information in a form that you you were old enough to wear, but not old enough to use any other cane. Would that have made your feet be straighter? Would that have allowed you to run and continue to play? And I am saying it does. That's who we what we see in the children that wear this cane. They are running. They are playing. They are not running into walls when they run. They're running towards people. They're interacting with their world because now they have the information, the essential path information that they need. And I just wonder what you would think about something like that. I would say it's interesting. You know, there's a part of me that's like, okay, let me see the goods before I say anything else. Because, 
you say they've dropped the ball. What I think has happened more often is that a lot of these, and I see it a lot, these internet young whiz kids get a grant from a university or from a Google think tank, and they're like, yes, I built this next great thing that's going to help blind people see in vibrations. Okay. What experience do, 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 you know, do these kids have with this actual idea of taking what is primarily visually processed information and making it tactile? Because it's a great theory to take one and transform it into the other. Great idea. How does it work in actual execution? And from what you're saying, the children that have tried uh, the product you're talking about, the wearable cane, they've actually developed the means of processing it. And that's great. That's a step forward that we haven't seen in any of these other, you know, uh, magic solution vibrating things that have I come out. I could not agree with you more if I could try. I, I just couldn't agree with you more. There are new apps out there and they're direction apps and they tell people to turn three times and all they want to do is get you around a temporary obstacle. It's ridiculous. So they, I'm like, where is the blind people in creating these apps? And they but always have right. one, right? They always have like one, they have one person in their video, like one blind person who tried out my app and it was great. And they have all these listings like, yeah, I, I work with the Lighthouse. I work with the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Like, I did blah, go to blah. 10 o'clock. I'm like, who is wearing a wristwatch that has 10 o'clock on it? I don't understand where 10 o'clock is if I'm blind. I I don't know. But, you know, that is true. And I love that you said that because in the end, what I'm saying is not app based. It's based in that if you're wearing a seatbelt in a car, you're a sensor that tells you to hold on to something because you're about to crash is not going to prevent you from crashing into the dashboard. You have to wear that Mm seatbelt. You have to have in a cane something that stops you. And from there, you'll decide what to do next. And that's really, we, you know, apps are good for orientation. But when it comes to mobility, you know, you need a dog, you need a cane, you need something that really interacts tactily with you to give you that information until otherwise, uh, I just feel like we've, we've got, we just could make it better. Just make it better. Make it more usable across the board for more, not less functions. That's my point. So yeah. one quick... Okay, go ahead, Kelvin. You need to wrap us up. <laughs> well, you no, can, just one I, quick question. Go ahead. Go, go for it. I'm going to wrap us up because uh, <laughs> we're, in, we're in that time frame. Uh, and I got to edit this. <laughs> yeah, you got to edit it. Yeah, I know. Okay. So quick thing. I love the idea of more function. Well, we get problematic sometimes. So again, and I talked to Kelvin about this with Smart Guider, is dependency. Because uh, a human brain is one of the most marvelously functional things. And there's some time where if you try and do too much, and then, you know, I don't know, the wearable cane runs out of battery or something happens. There's that, no battery. There's no battery? <laughs> no. no. It just put it on and it stops you from running into walls. Yep. From there, you take it from there. It tells you when you're about to drop off because it's a cane. It's just this cane that you wear so on a not belt. Electronic. It's electronic. It's no. not electronic oh, at all. It's, Zero. It, electric. It, it basically, if you ever played with one of those to- toy lawnmowers, safe toddle uh, belt cane is one of those canes where there's no there's no technology. It's straight up a cane, 
but it gives you more information than a regular blind cane would. So where where can we get a hold of you? Where, where where's a good way to send you an email, get in contact with you? What are the best ways to do that? Easiest way to get in contact with me, actually, that's public, would be through the Perseverance Podcast, which is on Facebook at Perseverance Podcast 3. You can search for our page there, all being me and Kelvin, because we host that podcast as well. Or podcast at perseverancepodcast.com. And, yeah, you send an email, talk about your perseverance experience, or just talk about how annoying I was on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And then hit direct email for the Perseverance Podcast at george at perseverancepodcast.com. Thank you. So, so this wraps up the Safe Toddles Podcast. So again, if you'd like to get a hold of us, go to info at safetoddles.org. Shoot us an email. If you want to get us on social media, we're on all social media platforms, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those places you want to find us. If you want to watch videos of how the Safe Toddles belt cane works go to youtube and you'll find us there also we are finding finalizing the donations to be able to sponsor 150 canes uh subscription service so please go to the safe so that way we you can help toddlers be able to get their safe toddles belt cane and be able to travel safely and independently so that wraps up the safe toddles podcast thank you guys thank and you, you guys George. have a great week Thank you, Kel. And we'll see you guys next time. Have a great week. Thanks again.